Whenever we come to the Protestant Reformation, probably the first thing that our mind comes to is the teaching and life and ministry of uh, Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer. We probably think of certain doctrines as sola scriptura, sola Christus, sola Dea Gloria, uh, all these wonderful doctrines that were recovered uh, through Martin Luther's exegesis of the Word of God. But I really like how John Calvin sums up the Reformation. He says that what Martin Luther recovered was not a mere doctrine, but was the true worship of the triune God. And that is what we are here to do this evening. This is a Reformation celebration, yes, but above all, it is a worship service of our God to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now as we enter into our time of Canto, I guess that's how you say it, um, I would ask you that you would steady your minds, that you would steady your hearts as we prepare to enter into the worship of the God who loved us and sent his son to die for us.
to your name give glory. Because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. O most gracious and precious heavenly Father who dwells in inapproachable light, Father, your people have gathered together to give worship and adoration to your name and to your name alone. But Father, we dare not come before the throne by our own works, by our own merits. So Father, everyone in this room has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And apart from the work of Jesus Christ would be consumed by the presence of your holiness. So Father, this evening we come to you with empty hands claiming the name of Jesus Christ, claiming his atoning blood and atoning and, and, and pleading his own righteousness that he has covered us in. We are clothed in his name. So Father, please come and dwell with your people by way of your Holy Spirit for the sake of Jesus Christ and our salvation. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you. 
we are going to have a few presentations that discuss this aspect, which is readily associated with Reformed theology, but not solely or singly associated with Reformed theology. And um, sad to say, I remember listening to Tiny Tim sing his song, Tiptoe. I'm old enough to recall that. And um, you never knew if he was really an accomplished musician. You knew he could sing in his falsetto, and, and he, it was his shtick. Um, I did a little research on Tiny Tim. Sadly, they have a video of him literally dying in concert of a heart attack. Um, but uh, he was a wonderful baritone, and he was supposed to be an incredible musicologist. Um, but yet, we only know him for kind of watching variety shows and being silly. So in that same vein of him being so eccentric, we end up talking about a few people from history, and we wonder, well, are they eccentric? For example, Jacobus Arminius, which becomes a foil for reform discussion. Was he just an eccentric? Was he someone who was an oddity that had to be dealt with? And so I did, of course, a little research on his life, and I find out that uh, Jacobus Arminius was a very well-respected theologian uh, in Amsterdam. That's where his first pulpit was. He was trained by Theodore Beza in Geneva. Theodore Beza gave him one of the most glowing commendations to the churches in the Netherlands as being a pastor who was thoroughly equipped for doing uh, the role of a minister in a reformed church. Um, and he was known for being very pastoral, being a wonderful preacher. There was actually a plague in Amsterdam, and he was one of the only ministers that would visit people in their homes during the plague, presumably without a mask, and he was highly regarded his entire life. And what became of interest in his life was that he was commissioned by his, uh, well, I guess his synod to publicly refute the teachings of another Dutch philosopher and theologian. His name was Dirk Kornhart. And um, he did not like the austere um, positions that the Reformed Church held on predestination. And so Jacobus Arminius was tasked with refuting him. And during his studies, he found that Dirk Kornhart's um, arguments were kind of compelling. And he began to uh, ameliorate some of his reformed positions. And he, being so well-respected, and he later in his life beginning to mediate on some of the reformed positions, um, he became sort of a figurehead for a group of ministers, at least 46 ministers who said, we don't like this type of reformed theology that is documented in the Heidelberg Catechism, which is documented in the Belgic Confession. We want to back off on some of these controversial teachings. 
And even though Jacobus Arminius had passed away, he was so highly regarded that those who came after him said, we want to be known as Arminians because he's the kind of pastor that we think we should emulate. And today, the notion of being Arminian versus Calvinism is sort of the ongoing debate. It's happened within church history for a millennia, right? So what we have now is um, the reading of a couple passages that would help us to understand why, as the Reformed, we hold to the views that we do. And the first verse I would like to read to you comes from Romans chapter 7, verse 18, where the Apostle Paul says, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Now, the modern-day Arminian would look at that verse and say, well, let's hold on a moment and let's really think about that. There's nothing good that dwells within me. I can give you three things that dwell within me, says the Arminian, that are good. Number one, I am created in the image of God. That's a good thing. And there's something within me in the image of God that allows me to make decisions that are pleasing to him. Number two, I have a conscience. A conscience is a good thing. Sometimes my conscience is pricked rightly and I make decisions that actually honor God. Number three, if God, by his grace, assists me in some way to believe in him, I have the will and the intention to actually do things to cooperate with God's grace. And so this tends to be the default position of those who are Arminian when it comes to the discussion um, against the Calvinists. And of course, when we use these names, we're just really talking about a summation of theological thought. I'm a Christian before I'm a Calvinist. I serve Jesus Christ. I don't serve John Calvin. But here is shorthand we use those references. So here is another verse that we need to discuss in response to this Arminian uh, perspective of the fact that, well, I have the image of God, I've got a conscience, and all I need is a little grace. So we turn now to that famous dissertation from Jesus in John chapter 6, if you'd like to turn there. Um, John chapter 6, beginning at verse 63. I really need that light on. Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him 
by my Father. So really, this discussion is a, an evaluation of our own will, our minds, our emotions, our orientation toward God. Are we in any way inclined to the things that honor God? Jesus would tell us that we must love God with what four components of our existence? We would love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the scripture says that our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength are not just hurting or ailing or need to be um, revived. Well, they do need to be revived. They, they are incapable in their own strength, in their own human flesh, to do anything that brings honor to God. Your love is mixed. Your thinking is selfish. Your, your um, heart, will, heart, soul, your soul is dead. And your earthly strength um, does not have the capacity to please God when it comes to moral decisions. We are morally dead before God, says the scriptures, and this passage from Jesus. So this is the need that we have. We don't need assistance from God. We need resurrection. All of the components of our life are dead and incapable of honoring God in any way. Talking about our conscience, we are more inclined to sear it and to ignore it than to obey it. Talking about being created in the image of God, that image was destroyed and shattered in Adam and Eve's first sin and is not capable of reconstructing itself. So it is our conviction that God must act upon us to revive us from our dead and spiritual condition. There is nothing that dwells within us that can revive us. It must be God's Spirit coming to us. Ordinarily, by the preaching of the words and the administration of the sacraments, by which we are revived and brought to faith by grace in Jesus Christ. I reference the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Confession. This is how a later confession expresses our conviction. And this is found in your Pew Hymnal, page 852, as a concluding reference. This is chapter 7. Article 3, man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased. Oh my goodness, that's the wrong one. That was on our good track though, wasn't it? It still addressed the matter that I was trying to say. Where did it go? In my notes, it is 7-3. Why was I reading that? Why am I confused? That's just classic. That shows you how depraved I am. I'm completely unprepared for the conclusion of my presentation. Well, we'll keep reading that one because it sounded pretty good. It sounded really good. Yeah. Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation, by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him, 
that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Let the Lord be glorified in this short presentation. Obviously, looking at the poorly named five points of Calvinism this evening, considering uh, my brother uh, with his lauding of the Dutch and the wonderful Dutch theologians failed to mention that this came from the. Did you mention the Canons of Dort? I didn't say. Yes, the can these are actually the five points of Dort would be a better way of naming this because he mentioned the Remonstrants, who were the ones, the Arminians, who opposed. The teachings of the reformers, including John Calvin, and their reaction to this was to say uh, certain things like, "We're not really, we're, we're just kind of sick in sin. We're not really dead in sin, and so forth." And so, these five points that we're talking about are actually a response to the false teaching of the Remonstrants. Uh, I had a professor in seminary who said that Calvin did not have five points. He had lots and lots of yes. points. Hopefully I will not have that many points for you this evening. Um, we're looking at unconditional election. And uh, I picked this because I'm preaching through uh, the book of Ephesians right now. We just finished Ephesians 1. And at the beginning of the book of Ephesians, Paul does something that's somewhat unusual in his epistles. He ordinarily will introduce himself and very quickly he'll go to a prayer, a prayer that he's been offering up for the church. He doesn't do that in Galatians because he's getting ready to scold them very quickly for abandoning the gospel. But here in Ephesians, he does something somewhat unusual. And I'll begin reading in verse 3 where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he has freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purchased in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise 
of His glory. Now, when I started, uh, that was actually six sermons when I started preaching through <laughs> Ephesians because I did it two verses each time because that is full of so many wonderful and precious doctrines that Paul mentions there. Now, he's going to lead to the next point. This is why I am praying for you in light of what I have just said about God, about all these wonderful doctrines, these spiritual blessings that He has blessed you in, in Christ Jesus. Uh, I, I want you to, this is why I'm praying for you. I want you to know these things so that you will know God better. And uh, I sat down and counted this out. I believe it's 202 words that he begins this letter with. In the Greek, it's 202 words. And it's all one sentence. Mm -hmm. And it's his praise of God. Now, in that, I mentioned not just election, but predestination, adoption, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the revealing of all things. We fight about those things. Or not, maybe not us in this room. I hope we don't fight about these things. But Christians today will argue about these things and fight about these things. And Paul says, you should be doing that. This is a reason to praise God. You should look at these things. And this is a reason to praise God and to bless Him and to give thanks to Him because this is what He has done for you. If my brother's words are true and they were true, if what Paul says in the next chapter of Ephesians is true, that we are dead in nature, by our natures, we are dead in trespasses and sins. This is really bothering me right here. Okay. Uh, if, if we are dead in our trespasses and sins, then what hope do we possibly have? We have no hope in ourselves. It must be God. It must be the grace of God. And that's why this election, which we're talking about here, is unconditional election. Now, the Remonstrants, the Arminians, they said that election was conditional. And there are a lot of people today who are professing Christians who believe that election our election is conditional. It's something we did. Maybe God looks through the quarters of time and sees some decision that we make, in which case God is dependent upon us. And election is no longer unconditional. It has strings attached. Or maybe because I'm better looking than Kent is. <laughs> or smarter than Joey. I'm not smarter than Joey. Smarter than Joey is. Uh, no, it's none of these things. He tells us in the verses here, uh, he chose us, that's the word for election, he chose us. When you go to the ballot box in November and you pull a lever or push a button or uh, my parents grew up writing on a piece of paper and sticking it in a box, you are choosing a candidate. Why did God choose us? He chose us uh, in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would holy, be holy and blameless. And in love he predestined us to adoption as his sons. Uh, through Jesus Christ to himself. Why? Why did he do this? According to the kind intention of his will. According to his purpose, his good purpose. According to his mere good pleasure. Not because you did something, because that's what God wanted to do. That was God's good pleasure. When I preached to this, I used the illustration of taking my kids for ice cream. Why do I take my kids for ice cream? Because they're the best kids in the world? Well, I personally think they're the best kids in the world. Mm -hmm. Why do I do that? Because I want to. Because I desire to do that. 
And God does this because he wants to. It's his decree. It's his plan. It's his purpose. And he has done this for a good purpose. Now, my members of my congregation are here. I already know the answer to this. Don't answer this out loud. It's a trick question. Is, is there anything that God cannot do? The answer is, I told you it's a trick question. Yes. What can God cannot do? He cannot lie. He cannot sin. He will not be evil. What is God's nature? God can do all things according to his nature. What is God's nature? It is good. It is kind. It is merciful. And he has done this. He has chosen believers in Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of his will, not because of anything in them, but because that was his plan, his purpose, and he desired to do that. Here's your you. Please stand with me and take our hymn books in hand and sing together hymn number 369, Shout for the Blessed Jesus Reigns. Please stand.
formulas, we like acrostics and that kind of thing because they help us to think, they help us to understand and remember. And so TULIP is a healthy, uh, helpful little acrostic. Total mm -hmm. depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. I've got the middle one, the L. You can't have a TULIP without an L, but the problem with that is that L is so limiting. So confining, it's kind of negative. Uh, you're talking about limited atonement, and that sounds really kind of negative. So rather than casting it in the negative mold, let's look at it in a more positive way. And there are other ways of describing it. We call it limited atonement because that's just convenient because you got to have an L and TULA. But rather than defining Christ's atoning death in terms, in those negative terms, again, in limiting or confining it in some sense, let's develop it in terms of, and I'm, I'm thinking in terms of maybe cooking, about a cook, but if I were to bake a cake, there's certain ingredients I'd need without which you can't have a cake. You can't have a cake without flour, for example, or if you're making a stew, certain basic ingredients, and you've got to have all the ingredients to make it right. And I want to look at five ingredients that go to make up the doctrine of the atonement. Not just limited atonement, but the, but the doctrine of the atonement in general, which is defining for the concept we're looking at. You use a little alliteration. Uh, with, with the letter S, and so we're going to begin with the idea of sacrifice. Uh, the death of Jesus was uh, sacrificial in nature. Uh, he, he did not die, and I've said this to our people a lot, didn't die from natural causes. Didn't mm -hmm. die of old age, didn't die from an accident, didn't die from disease, it wasn't COVID or cancer or anything like that at all. His death was deliberate, it was with religious intent. It was an act that was Godward in direction. It was in fact a sacrifice. It was made a religious sacrifice. Secondly, it was satisfaction. Satisfaction is the second term. Uh, justice demands that a crime or a sin has to be punished. Virtue is to be rewarded. You're talking about being fair, giving somebody what they deserve. And desert is at the heart of justice. And so justice, while rewarding virtue, demands that sin and crime be punished. Uh, it, it deserves that. There is a need to satisfy the demands of justice. If I speed down and talk about a little road, get caught, I'm going to have to pay a fine. Uh, the Bible says that there is a wage, a punishment, a penalty for sin, and the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus died, and believe, we might say, well, we take this for granted. All evangelicals do. No, they really do not. Jesus died to satisfy the demands of God's holy and righteous law, the demands of God's justice. But why did he specifically have to die? What did he do? I mean, he was a really great guy, was he not? A nice guy, a good man. What did Jesus do that merited God pouring out his wrath upon him upon the cross? Well, actually nothing, nothing. He wasn't being punished. He was not satisfying the demands of God's law or justice for anything that he personally had done. Gates for you and I. His death was substitutionary in nature. It was vicarious in nature. He was dying as my substitute, as your substitute, in my place and on my behalf. It was a sacrifice. It was to satisfy the requirements of God's justice as a substitutionary atonement, but it was also strategic in nature. Uh, contrary to a major school of thought within evangelical Christianity, the death of Jesus Christ was not an afterthought. There's a whole school of thought that dominates a large portion of evangelical Christianity. It says that Jesus Christ came not to die, but to establish a kingdom. It's only after the Jews rejected an offer, uh, a bona fide offer on his part for kingdom 
that he had to go to the cross and die. It's sort of an afterthought. It's kind of like we're making it up as we go along. That's the way a lot of people perceive it. Uh, that's not the way it was at all. As you just indicated, it was in keeping with a plan that was established, a plan that was laid before this world even took shape. The Confession of Faith puts it this way. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His own glory, some men and angels are predestined unto eternal life, and others foreordained unto eternal and everlasting death. These angels and men, thus predestined and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, that means in terms of the number, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Hmm. There is a specific number, not one more or one less, that are involved. As God, it goes on to say, as God has appointed the elect unto glory, He has also, by the eternal and most free purpose of His will, foreordained all the means thereunto. And that included, again, the work of the Holy Spirit in coming to you and I that have been chosen by God, breathing life into our lifeless souls. But more fundamental than that, or as fundamental as that, was simply the death of Jesus Christ. He died specifically as a part of a larger plan. It's part of a larger plan. He died specifically to accomplish that which God had determined before the world was even established. So in that sense, it was strategic. It was specific. It was a, shall we say, a particular redemption. But lastly, it was also sufficient. It was sacrificial in nature. It was to satisfy the requirements of God's justice as a substitution for sinners like you and I. It was strategic and specific in nature. But it was, sufficient, it was sufficient in the sense that it was, well, in one sense, it was adequate. Uh, yes, we might think in terms of the world's population, every single man, woman, boy, and girl that has ever been born, without exception, it was adequate for every person born into this race. And were we to multiply this creation, this planet, were there many other universes, it would have been adequate for every universe, the thousand million that existed because of the infinite worth of Jesus Christ. But it's not just it was adequate for so many people, it was efficacious. It was efficacious. We can speak in terms of, a, of an efficacious atonement. Again, we got to speak with the L books of Limited and Tulip, but it was efficacious, meaning that it was effectual. We've got some pharmacists here. You take a medicine, if I've got, a, if I've got an infection, uh, some sort of an infection, maybe in my lungs or whatever. If I can't take an antibiotic, uh, if it doesn't work, it's not effective. But if it cures me, we can speak of it as being effectual or effective, and the, the, the death of Christ was effective. We can sing, as many cannot, that there is power in the blood. I almost have to smile when a lot of people sing that because they speak of a death that really had virtually no power, but there was power in the blood, Jesus succeeded in what he set out to accomplish. It's been a long time, but we were used to be pretty heavily involved in politics and in the local Raleigh Bartlett Republican Club. There was a day when things were not going our way, let's put it that way. And a uh, member of the club, who was also a member of the Shelby County Board of Education, and a member of a very prominent evangelical church in our area, wanted to kind of encourage the rest of us in the club. We were kind of down and out and discouraged and disheartened. And so he told a little story about a man that lived many, many years ago who came with a mission, and he didn't accomplish his mission, but he never gave up. 
There was this tenacity. He never <laughs> gave up. And we need to do like he did. Just hang in there regardless. He's talking about Jesus. We need to be like Jesus. He came with a mission. He didn't succeed, but he never gave up. And you can laugh, but understand the position you've described, the Arminian position, is such that, according to their doctrine of the atonement, Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus, Jesus did not secure the salvation of even one individual. Not one. According to their doctrine of the atonement, he did not secure the salvation not so much as one person. Theoretically, according to the Armenian theology, it is conceivably possible that Jesus could have died for the whole world and not one person had been saved. That, theoretically, is what they believe. We don't believe that. The death of Jesus Christ had efficacy. There is power in the blood. He came in part to fulfill a larger plan of God. And yes, indeed, he succeeded in what he did. I've got a couple of quotations. One, an individual says, I see no purpose, benefit, or comfort in a redemption that does not redeem, a propitiation that does not propitiate, a reconciliation that does not reconcile, Neither do I have faith in a hypothetical salvation for hypothetical believers. Again, this is not some sort of a theoretical, hypothetical. This is what people actually believe. Jesus died a hypothetical death, making a hypothetical atonement for hypothetical sinners. That doesn't do me any good at all. He goes on to say, our faith is in a redemption which infallibly secures the salvation of each and every one for whom it was designed, namely the children of God that were scattered abroad, which is such a multitude of sinners declared righteous that no man can count. Then Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, the pre prince of the preacher said, I would rather believe a limited atonement that is efficacious for all men for whom it was intended than a universal atonement that was not efficacious for anybody apart from the consent of various individuals. I do not believe in an atonement which is admirably wide, but faithfully ineffectual. Again, faithful is the same, worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world, sinners to save. And that's in the indicative mode, you that know Greek, not some sort of a hypothetical death, but to actually save actual sinners. Praise God. Thank you, sir. I'd like to start off with by congratulating Reverend Phillips on breaking my record for the most times having backhanded the microphone. <laughs> this is why. I have a, I'm glad I have a projecting voice. I can stick this thing like way out here. I still hit it multiple times in the service. Uh, but anyway, so it has been uh, my call to uh, open God's word to you and explain to you the I and our tool. Uh, I meaning irresistible grace. And it's unfortunate that this doctrine can be very confusing for us. And I think the reason, one of the reasons why it can be so confusing, is, as Joey was just saying about his, is the term irresistible grace, it, there are better terms that we can use. 
uh, for the doctrine. When we hear the term irresistible grace, where our mind goes to is, like, wait a minute, I see people resisting the grace of God all over the place. Mm -hmm. Shoot, I have, re I have uh, resisted the grace of God multiple times today, and I am a pastor. Mm -hmm. The grace of God is oftentimes resisted. It is all times resisted. As we have looked at in the doctrine of total depravity, we are all dead in our sins and dead in our trespasses. None of us are alive apart from the work of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. It is he who makes alive. And so I think a better term to use other than irresistible grace is another term that you use, effectual grace. The grace of God is not vain. The grace of God is not empty. It is not weightless. It carries with it quickening, life-giving power from God. It is not an empty word that we have in the good news of Jesus Christ. It is a powerful word, a powerful, a power that does not emanate from the preacher, does not emanate, does not emanate from the person receiving the word, but it is a power that comes from the from the omnipotent Spirit of God. When, uh, when Paul says in Romans one that that, that, this, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, how powerful is God? All powerful. The grace that we have has made us alive. The grace of God is what causes us to be saved in total. Many of us think that when we think of the grace of God, like, well, I need the grace of God at the beginning. I need the grace of God to forgive my sins, but from this point forward, it's all up to me. I'm joining with God. I'm pulling myself up by my bootstraps. That is not the Christian life. You are saved in total by the grace of God. You are elected by the grace of God. You are justified by the grace of God. You are being sanctified by the grace of God. And even this, you believe in the good news of Jesus Christ because of the grace of God. So this evening, I want to show you this from the text of Scripture. So please take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, I will begin by reading the first three verses. We're going to go through the first five verses. I want to begin by going through the first three verses. This is, in essence, the doctrine of total depravity that Pastor Morlock went through. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You were not mostly dead apart from Christ. You were not sick. You were not terminally ill, hanging by a thread. You were dead in your sins and dead in your trespasses. But you see a foreshadowing of this effectual grace in that text. You who were once, you who were. He's using the past tense in these verses. And what he's doing is he is preparing us for what we come to in verse 4. The word of God's omnipotent powerful grace, what Martin Lloyd-Jones called the most beautiful words in the English language, but God. 
You were dead in your sins. You were dead in your trespasses. You were following after the prince of the power of the air. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That is not just the beginning. That is not just the end. That is not just the middle. That is all of it. If you are here in this room and have confessed faith in Jesus Christ, it is not because one day, by your own abilities, you came to your senses. That you were convinced by a philosopher. That you are convinced by a pastor speaking mere human words. You are a believer in Christ. Because though the pastor who speaks to your ears cannot speak to your heart. It is Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, who speaks to the heart. And his word is quickening. His word makes alive. You are here today because you're not dead. But you are alive in Jesus Christ. The good shepherd, Jesus Christ, calls his sheep by name and he will lose none of them. But how do we receive that word? It is through the proclamation of the word. It is through the reading and the preaching of the scriptures. The word is central to the grace of God. If you are saved, it is through the word. Salvation does not take place apart from the word of God. We're here celebrating the Protestant Reformation. At the heart of the Reformation is the word. Is the doctrines that it teaches. That is what has gone forward, and that is what has made alive, and that is what has inspired the Reformation. We, many of us today, we sit around and we talk about the need of revival in our churches, the need of reformation in the world. That does not take place if the Word of God is not truly preached in all of its glory, word for word. Let me read you a quote from Martin Luther. And I'll finish with this. I'm going to read you a quote from Martin Luther. If you were here this morning, you've already heard this once. You're going to have to hear it again. But this is what Martin Luther credits the Reformation on. He says, I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I did not need to. I simply taught preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. Yet I did nothing. The word of God did everything. If you are a child of God in this room today, you have done nothing. The word of God and the grace of the Holy Spirit working in that word and putting it into your heart and making you a new creation. Not in the image of these lifeless idols or the lifeless people of this world, the walking zombies. You are conformed in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. You are alive in him, not because of what you've done, but because the, the work of the word. I have done nothing. You have done nothing. And it's the word of God that has done everything.
Now, with that being said, I'll drop my bulletin. Let us all stand and sing a psalm about our good shepherd who calls us by name. Psalm 23, this is going to be hymn 87 in your hymn books. Hymn 87, please stand. Pentecostal dad for a pastor. 
And uh, so I'd heard a lot of the Bible, but it hadn't become mine yet. And I remember there was this time when I turned 12 years old. We had a, a big quarter horse, just two, three years old, a big red. For those of you that know horses, know just about every big red horse in history has been named Big Red. And it was the old first time that I was getting to walk him and trot him and ride him and run him a little bit. You know, it was a big deal for me. It was like becoming a man, right? So I take the horse out and I get on him and my dad only tells me one thing. You know, you don't come back with the horse. Don't come back. Mm -hmm. So I get on him and I get out to the field and everything. And one of my brothers, one of my wonderful brothers who I love so much, mm -hmm. had left the fence open. And he takes me out onto the driveway, and he walks me almost a mile down to the freeway. And then he walks a mile or two down to a field, and believe me, I'm kicking, and I'm pulling, and I've got the reins, and I'm pulling and kicking, and he is ignoring me completely. Because you know how it is with a full-grown horse. They know you're a boy. You can't do anything. And he goes into a field where there's all these lovely yellow flowers growing, and he just starts eating flowers. And I just sit there. Remember it. Don't come back without this horse. <laughs> and we were there for, I don't know, an hour, two hours. The sun's starting to go down. I'm looking up at the clouds, and it was one of the first times that it really affected me that the sky was so huge, and the clouds were blowing by, and I was a very small thing in a very big world. And I just remember thinking about the fact that I thought that I had control of this situation, because I had the reins. But God had the horse. Mm -hmm. And when he was tired, he just walked right back down the road, right up the driveway, walked all the way to his stall, and then looked at me like, give me some water and brush me down. I'm done for the day. <laughs> so, of course, you know, I went in and my dad laughed at me a little while and we watched the Rockford Files for about mm -hmm. two hours. <laughs> <laughs> this gets down to that issue of God's ultimate sovereignty over all things that's very disturbing to us, but it's also the source of our comfort mm. as a Christian. If he doesn't have control over everything, then at the end of the day, he really has control over very little or nothing, right? And this is the one that we like to talk about, and we call it by this nickname, once saved, always, always saved, right? When I was a kid, of course, what I was taught was that was not true. You could be saved, then not saved, then saved, then not saved, then maybe you were saved, you were probably saved, but you wouldn't be saved the next day. Because it was very contingent upon you, everything that happened in your salvation. But we worship a God that's very different. And the uniform answer of the Reformation for the last 500 years has been that if God has you, God will hold you. You think you're holding on to him because you've got the reins, but he's got the horse. Uh... So, of course, we talk about the spiritual rebirth, right? And you guys all remember the most famous Bible verse in all of college football, John 3.16. Mm -hmm. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would never perish but have everlasting life. But we forget the verses right before it that say, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He has to be born once of the flesh. He has to be born also of the spirit. And uh, looking into that, you know, there's a lot of us to think that we're really in control of that too, right? Mm. But you have about as much to do with your second birth as you had to do with your first one. Now, how many of you think you were calling the shots in that? Mm. Come on, mama, push! You were doing that. All of these things.
things had to do with decisions and powers beyond your ken or ability to understand, and you were just pretty much along for the ride, right? You were the blessed recipient of all of those things, but you didn't cause any of them. Now, there's this interesting set of verses in John chapter 6 that always blow my mind. You know, uh, when we're talking about these things, we're talking about also the solos of the Reformation. They're built in there. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And we know that when we measure it by Scripture alone. When we measure it by Scripture and lots of other stuff like philosophy and opinions and mere human logic, it can all get washed away. But as long as we're measuring it by Scripture, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in verse 36, we've got eyeballs here. 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And then he explains to them why some of them believe and some of them don't. If you can take this verse, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We've got to notice there that Jesus is not a, the least bit confused about what he's saying. He's speaking with intentionality, and he's speaking with utter and unmistakable clarity about the fact that he will save you, and he will carry you through to the end. You know, in that thing about glory to God alone, we can only reserve the glory to God alone if the same glory that he's given in your salvation is given to him in your perseverance. In other words, the same grace that saves you is the same grace that carries you through to the end and makes sure that you stay saved. One of, the, one of the glories and part of the genius of God is that he did not place a single particle of your salvation in your own hands to carry it out to the end. The grace of God carries you all the way through and the same door that you came in to get saved, we like to call it, is the same one that will save you all the way to the end. You can never be lost to God, not because you're so good at religion. I'd imagine you're not. Folks in my church are still sinning from time to time. Maybe it's different around here. But even in those things, it is God's grace and mercy that will carry you through and keep you having saving faith until the day that you meet him again. And maybe he'll come back before you do that, or maybe you'll be going to see him. But one way or another, you've got to meet him coming. Right? Lord our God and Father, we look into your word and we see marvelous things there, but they're also too powerful for us to comprehend. You're a God that knows all things, has power over all things. You have ordained all things, all for your pleasure and to your ultimate perfect end and purpose. Even our salvation is in your hands, Lord God, and so we place ourselves willingly in your hands. Even our salvation is from first to last by saving grace through faith. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.
please stand with me and sing our closing hymn, the great hymn of the Reformation. In number 92, a mighty fortress is our God.
May your spirit come into our lives. May we carry him with us wherever we go as he is proclaimed to us in your holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May we bear fruit for that kingdom rather than the kingdoms of men which fall and decay. But Father, may our citizenship be in heaven, your kingdom which is without end. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. And receive the benediction. May he who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the throne of glory with great joy abide with you all both this day and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Amen.